With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to another edition of the Forza Napoli Cultural Podcast. This is a podcast all about Napoli, of course, but you don't have to be a Napoli fan to enjoy it. If you're a Serie A fan, if you're a football fan, looking for the inside scoop on all things Napoli, this is the place to be. I'm your host, Joe Fischetti. Thank you, as always, for listening. I'm flying solo for today's episode, but I do have three parts for you. In part one, I'll review our big win over Hellas Verona on Sunday. In part two, I'll review our midweek Primavera match against Atalanta. And in part three, I'll review our Primavera match at the weekend against Empoli. So let's begin with the match against Hellas Verona on Sunday. As you know, the match finished 2-1 in favor of Napoli. Victor Osimhen scored a brace. He opened the scoring in the 13th minute, then doubled Napoli's lead with about 20 minutes left to play. Davide Faraoni pulled one back in the 77th minute, and Verona were really pushing forward for the equalizer, but in the 83rd minute, Federico Ceccherini picked up his second yellow card in less than 15 minutes, and that really took the wind out of Hellas Verona's sail, so we went on for the victory. Now, the 1-1 draw earlier in the season was a match where nothing seemed to go our way, I thought the opposite was true in this match. Aside from Mario Rui hitting the crossbar, I maintain that no one deserves a goal more than Mario Rui does. But we played a team who got hit with a bout of the flu before the match, so Verona had a very short bench, and it included a number of Primavera players. In the 37th minute, Fabio De Pauli was forced to leave the match due to injury, and he was playing for the injured Darko Lazovic, so Tudor had to resort to that short bench. And then we had Ceccherini getting sent off at the most inopportune time. Verona had just pulled one back. They were sending wave after wave of attack forward. And I was very concerned that we were going to concede the equalizer. But like I said, that sending off really took the wind out of Verona's sails. They were tired. We had fresh legs. And with an extra man, they simply could not take the ball away from us. We completed 25 consecutive passes in the build-up to that chance for Mario Rui. And it was largely because we had an extra man on the pitch. 
So in the end, we got an incredibly important victory, not just to stay in the title race, but also from a mental point of view, it was huge to get our first win over Hellas Verona in two seasons, let alone at the Bentegodi. We'll talk about all of that in this review, I'm going to spend a fair bit of time talking about Spalletti's tactics, and we'll address the behavior of the Verona Ultras, but first, let's get to the starting lineups. Igor Tudor made only one change to the starting 11 that our friend Rick Hoff predicted in our match preview, that was to start Bosco Sutolo over Nicolo Casale in the back three, along with Cecherini and Corey Guntor. Lorenzo Montipo started in goal. Adrian Temeza and Ivan Ilic started in the center of the midfield. Fabio De Pauli started at left wing back and Davide Faraoni started at right wing back. Antonin Barak returned to the starting 11 after sitting out the Fiorentina match with a bruised hip. He played as one of the two trequartisti alongside Gianluca Caprari. That relegated Kevin Lasagna to the bench. And finally, Giovanni Simeone started at striker. For Napoli, Luciano Spalletti made two changes to the squad that he fielded against Milan. He also switched from the 4-2-3-1 to a 4-3-3. The back five remained unchanged with David Ospina in goal, Kaladu Kulibali and Amir Rachmani at center back, Mario Rui at left back and Giovanni Di Lorenzo at right back. Stanislav Lobotka played as the regista behind Andre Frank Zamboangisa and Fabian Ruiz. That relegated Piotr Zelinski to the bench. Chucky Lozano started on the left wing over Lorenzo Insigne and Matteo Politano started on the right wing. Finally, Victor Osimhen started as striker. So those were the starting lineups and that's exactly where I want to start the review. There was a lot of talk before the match about changes Spalletti should make, especially on the wings. A lot of people got their wish with Insigne starting on the bench. I've defended Insigne during the transfer to Toronto and I appreciate all that he's done for the club, but I think this was the right call. Lozano didn't have a particularly strong performance, but what we were doing on the wings before the match didn't seem to be working, so I'd rather make a change and see what happens than stick to something that's not working. That said, after seeing how the match played out, I think Spalletti made this change as much for tactical reasons as it was because Insigne was out of form. We saw both sides pressing high early in the match, and I suspect that Spalletti was anticipating this. One of the problems against Milan was that when Milan pressed, we went long to Victor, which is fine, especially when you have a player like Osimhen up there chasing those balls, but he had no support. So I think the logic behind starting Lozano was that, with his pace, he can get up the pitch quicker to support Victor. In the end, Lozano didn't make that much of a difference. He made a couple of decent plays in the first half. He had the one chance where he made a lovely turn on Sutolo at midfield to open up the midfield, but then his pass was too heavy for Osimhen. He also made a nice little play to hold up the ball at midfield before slipping it through to Fabian again. That opened up the midfield for Fabian, who ended up getting a good chance to score on his weaker right foot, but he missed the target. It seemed to me that our front three were dropping deeper than they usually do to show for the ball, which might have been another, perhaps more nuanced, tactical change that Spalletti made for this match. The other benefit of starting Insigne on the bench was that we had him available to come off the bench. I think that worked well too. I don't know if it's because of his age or just the accumulation of injuries, but Insigne's pace seems to have dropped off. He's not going to outpace many right backs in the league anymore, particularly the younger ones like Calabria, but Insigne still has a fantastic touch and he's still very calm on the ball, so he's actually the perfect player to bring off the bench, especially when you have a lead and you want to control the pace of the match. 
The other change that worked out really well was playing Lobotka, Anguissa, and Fabian in the midfield. I thought this was Anguissa's best match in a really long time. Obviously, he missed a number of games due to injury and AFCON, but this was the closest version of him that we've seen since everyone raved about him earlier in the season. And just like back then, when Anguissa is on, Fabian has a lot more freedom to get forward and join the attack. You could see, especially in the first half, that Anguissa would control the ball in the middle third and he was telling his teammates to calm down. We still resorted to the long ball quite a bit, but I think we used it a little less than we have been of late. Now Anguissa did seem to tire out early in the second half, so I was surprised to see Spalletti play him for the full 90 minutes. Now I saw some people suggesting that Lobotka wasn't great in this match. I think Lobotka was fine, but in a way he was a victim of all the long balls. Of course, when you play the long ball, you're bypassing the midfield, so naturally Lobotka would be less involved. But by the end of the match, his pass accuracy was 97.6%. Now he did play fewer passes than he normally does, and most of the time his passes are short ones. But if you do the math, that means he missed only one out of the 42 passes that he played in the match and I'm pretty sure that one pass that he missed was a header which is obviously not his strong suit. So for me I think Spalletti got the formation and the lineup spot on. It's quite the luxury to have players like Insignia, Zielinski, Mertens and Elmas all on the bench. I'm sure the Mertens conspiracy theorists might have noticed that he didn't feature once again but I think that was largely a result of how the match played out. Mertens is the type of player you want to bring on to score goals if you're behind or level He's not as useful to protect a lead. That's why Spalletti used Petania late in the match. Unfortunately, he only lasted a few minutes before exiting the match with a thigh injury. The latest on that injury is he strained his right thigh, so he'll miss a couple of matches. Gulam was about to come on to close the match, so Spalletti still used him and moved Mario Rui a little bit higher up the pitch. I talked about both sides pressing high. We also saw Napoli playing a high line which I think was very effective, particularly in the first half. In fact, all six times Verona was called offside was in the first half. Four of those six times, it was Simeone that got caught. I think that was a big reason why he didn't have much enough effect on the game. I also noticed that, at least in the first half, both fullbacks were stepping up whenever the Verona front three would drop. I think that was by design as well. All three of those players in the Verona front three like to drop to receive the ball between the lines, so that was an effective way to negate that. We didn't play a high line in the second half, but that makes sense considering that we had the lead. Defensively, this was another really solid performance. We held Verona to only one shot on target, which of course was the goal. I think you could definitely fault Napoli's defending on the goal, but I'm more inclined to credit Verona's attack instead. I thought Verona worked the ball around really well, starting from the cross that Simeone overhit. Temeze saved the ball, and then Verona moved it around really quickly. Temeze, Caprari, Bessa, Caprari, then back heel back to Temeze. The cross from Temeze was inch perfect. It was just out of the reach of Koulibaly. Now, perhaps you could blame Mario Rui for getting beat in the air by Faraoni, but I thought Faraoni did an excellent job of attacking that ball. It wasn't just on Mario Rui either. First of all, Mario Rui was already marking Simeone when Faraoni made that late run, so Rui got stuck marking two guys. That was Insigne's man, but Insigne let Faraoni go to go defend nobody at the top of the box. Now, Insigne was probably thinking we had enough cover in the area, so he's going to position himself to win the second ball. And he would have been absolutely right to do that. We had four players in the area to defend Verona's three. Fabian and Rachmani both lost Barak, so we had two players defending no one. 
That meant Koulibaly had to step up on Barak, which left Mario Rui to mark Simeone and Faraoni, and he simply got beat. The header from Faraoni was quality as well. He picked the corner perfectly and left Ospina with no chance to make the save. Verona's XG for the match was only 0.6, which tells you about the difficulty of scoring that goal. There were probably others, but the only other poor defensive play that really stood out to me was the one where Cecchettini stomped on Ospina's hand. Hindsight is 20-20, but I think the safe play would have been to just boot that ball out for a throw. Aside from the fact that Ospina could have been seriously hurt, while Meret is also injured no less, that play easily could have resulted in a goal. But other than those two plays, I think we were really solid at the back. Once again, Giovanni Di Lorenzo was absolutely fantastic in this match, both for his contributions in defense and in attack. I'll come back to the goals in a moment, but I completely agree with Patrick Hendrick, who said on Twitter that Di Lorenzo is the most underrated player in the league. It amazes me how many Calcio fans don't rate him. I think Di Lorenzo and Calabria are miles ahead of any other Italian rightbacks at the moment. Now, obviously, I'm biased as an Apple fan, but I would still take Di Lorenzo over Calabria. First, Di Lorenzo's fitness and durability are second to none. Calabria has missed his share of games due to a variety of injuries over the past few seasons. And second, Di Lorenzo is more flexible. He's primarily a right back, but he can also play left back and center back, and he can play those positions well. Anyhow, I generally don't like these comparisons. I think they are both quality players. Both contribute in the attack as well, so that's a good segue to the goals. Di Lorenzo was involved in both goals, and oddly enough, both came from throw-ins on the right side. On the first, Di Lorenzo played the throw-in down the line to Politano, and Politano played a gorgeous cross into the area with his weaker right foot. A quick word on Politano before I get to Victor. I thought he played really well for the hour or so that he was on the pitch. I was expecting Lozano to start over Politano on the right wing because Politano was quite poor against Milan, but there's a reason why Spalletti is the coach and I am not. Spalletti gave him another chance and I think Politano made the most of it. Perhaps the fact that Spalletti dropped Insigne was motivation enough. I think that sent a pretty strong message that no one is safe, even our captain will sit if he is not at his best. Whatever the reason, Politano looked very lively in this match. There was one play where he tracked back to the corner to help defend, then he chased the ball back out and won a slide tackle. Even though Politano seemed to have another disagreement with Spalletti on the field on the touchline, that type of effort will always impress the manager. And then there was the assist on the goal. I'd love to see Politano cross the ball with his right foot more. Even if he just does it every once in a while, that's enough to keep defenders honest. Otherwise, he's far too predictable and much easier to defend, so well done to Politano. Of course, the man of the hour was Victor Osimhen. He absolutely thumped that header into the back of the goal. That was his third goal since returning from his face injury, and remarkably, all three were scored with his head. The game-winning goal in this match was actually his first since the injury that he scored with his foot. That play started with a long ball forward by Rachmani to Elmas, who won a throw-in, Cecchettini thought he was fouled on the plane. He should have been shown a second yellow card when he furiously launched the ball out of play. I'm glad he didn't though because that frustrated clearance took Cecchettini out of position. The ball boy quickly gave Elmas another ball and Di Lorenzo made a heads up run down the line. So everything worked out well for us. Di Lorenzo picked out Osimhen for the tap-in. That was his ninth of the campaign and his 13th in all competitions. And every single one of them have been from open play. 
I loved the celebration after the goal. Koulibaly grabbed a camera from one of the cameramen on the touchlines and gave it to Victor to take a picture of the curva. I thought that was a really cool moment. Of course, Koulibaly celebrated with the camera after he scored against Juventus earlier in the season. Now at that point, Koulibaly had already relinquished the captain's armband to Lorenzo Insigne, but he showed there that he is the real captain of this team, and I have no doubt that he will be the captain next season. I know some people were suggesting that Osimhen was determined to prove Igor Tudor wrong. Personally, I think the kid is just hungry for goals. For those of you who don't know what I'm talking about, in his pre-match conference, Tudor was asked who is stronger between Vlahovic and Osimhen, and he said Vlahovic now... I know the smart thing to do would be for Tudor to avoid picking either player, but I don't think his response was as bad as everyone was making it out to be. I saw the interview and he just said, Osimhen is strong, but I think Vlahovic is stronger. Given his ties to Juventus, I'm not terribly surprised by Tudor's response, but like I said, Victor seems to be motivated enough as it is, I don't think he needs any additional motivation. You can see that in the way he plays, he wants to win every single ball that is played in his direction, and he often does. Gazzetta dello Sport had a fantastic stat on Victor after the match. They noted that Napoli have collected 43 points when Victor's played, which is an average of 2.26 points per game. In the 10 matches that Victor did not play, Napoli averaged only 1.7 points per game, so that just shows how valuable he is to this team. The last thing I want to talk about is the Hellas Verona Ultras, starting with the banner that was displayed before the match. For those of you who still haven't seen it, it was a banner that had the flags of Russia and Ukraine, and then below the flags were a bunch of coordinates, which as it turns out, were the coordinates of Napoli. In other words, they were saying, take the war, the fighting, the bombs to Napoli. Though the banner was widely condemned, including by legacy CEO Luigi De Siervo and by Hellas Verona, no actions have been taken against any individuals or against the club. Even though the banner is literally signed by the Hellas Verona Curva Sud, we learned on Monday that the Fijici advised the prosecutor's office that there will be no punishments for the banner as it was displayed outside of the stadium and it wasn't displayed during an official match. The banner was displayed in the parking lot where the visiting fans were to arrive well before the start of the match. The same report said it would be up to the local authorities to track down and sanction those involved. To me, this passive approach is exactly why this garbage keeps happening. A league and a club that gives these ultras a platform to spew this hatred is just as culpable as the ultras themselves. There is nothing stopping the league or the club from banning these ultras that obviously wouldn't stop them from doing these things outside of the stadium, but it would certainly take their voice away. Instead, the Hellas Verona Twitter account posted a picture on social media that said Hellas for Peace with the caption, We for Peace Always. Naturally, numerous Napoli fans responded with pictures of the banner, asking the club what they were going to do about it. So once again, the club was presented with the opportunity to make a difference, but instead, Hellas Verona's Twitter admin promptly blocked any accounts that called them out, which I think says a lot about the club. With all of the talk about the banner, what didn't get as much attention as it should have was the racist chants that were hurled at Kaladu Koulibaly and Victor Osimhen. We saw Koulibaly put his finger in his ear during the match as if to drown out the noise. 
After the match, Kulibaly posted a picture of Napoli with the same coordinates, which by the way was a classic Napolitan response to the banner. All across social media, Napolitani were posting beautiful pictures of the city with those same coordinates from the banner. Below his post, Kulibaly added two stickers. One said, no war, and the other said, take this, you need it, with a picture of a brain. Now, the same report that said there would be no punishments for the banner also said that there would be fines for the chants. We learned on Tuesday that Hellas Verona would have to play one match with those sections where the chants were coming from closed. I suppose that's a start, but it's nowhere near enough. One match against 19th place Genoa, no less, a club that also hails from the north, is really not going to change anything. There were some fines issued as well, but the fines had nothing to do with the chants or the banner. The club was fined 4,000 euros for fans setting off a firework and 3,000 euros for derogatory chants towards the match officials. Meanwhile, Napoli was fined 5,000 euros for setting off smoke bombs in the stadium. So in the end, Hellas Verona was only fined 2,000 euros more than Napoli was. We've talked about this on the pod before, so I don't know what more there is to say. A one-match ban and fines are not significant enough to affect change. Just like with the banner and with numerous previous incidents of racism, we know the league and the clubs are not going to do anything about it, and we know the players are not going to take matters into their own hands and walk off the pitch, which means this stuff is just going to continue to happen. And I don't mean to sound dismissive because each act of racism is just as serious as the first, it just seems like in Italy and in Serie A, the more this stuff happens, the more acceptable it becomes, and it's just not right. That will do for part one. In part two, we'll review the first of two Primavera matches. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club! Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, overprohibited by law, 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to part two of the Forza Napoli podcast. Next, let's review our midweek Primavera fixture, which was on Wednesday, the 9th of March, against Atalanta. Atalanta went into that match sitting in 8th in the table. Much like their senior team, they've had a really up and down season. They had alternated wins and losses heading into this match. They beat Juventus 2-1 and then lost 2-0 to Sampdoria. Then they beat Milan 3-1 before losing 2-1 to Lecce. That loss to Lecce was the most surprising as Lecce have been in the relegation zone for the better part of the season. Atalanta were on 33 points, which was only 3 points back of Sassuolo and Sampdoria for the final playoff spot, so they had plenty to play for in this match. Meanwhile, Napoli were coming off their strongest performance of the season, which was a 3-0 win over Milan. That put us in a strong position with respect to the relegation playout. We were 4 points clear of the playout zone, plus we still had a game in hand against bottom of the table Pescara. The Azzurini might have won the match against Milan, but we lost a number of players. Both Giuseppe Ambrosino and Benedetto Barba picked up yellow cards in that match, which meant they were both suspended for this one. Meanwhile, both of our starting wingbacks, Enrico Giannini and Matteo Marchisano, picked up muscle injuries, so they were not available for this match either. So with that, let's get to the starting lineups. Atalanta lined up in a 3-5-2 formation with Matez Daichar in goal. 
Giorgio Scalvini, Andrea Cerezoli, and Giorgio Cittadini played as the back three. Guillaume Renault played at left wing back, and Andrea Olivieri played at right wing back. Alessandro Sidibe started in the center of the midfield with Simone Panada to his left and Samuel Giovanni to his right. Finally, Shakar Omar and Mustafa Sisse played as the two strikers. For Napoli, Nicolo Frustalupi made seven changes to the squad that he fielded against Milan. He lined up in his usual 3-4-2-1 formation with Huberti Dasiak in goal. Daniel Hisai was the only player that remained in the back three. 18-year-old Pasquale Pontillo started over Davide Costanzo and Musa Mane started over Benedetto Barba. Colisaco was the only player who remained in the midfield. Francesco Gioielli started over Alessandro Spavone in the center of the midfield with Sacco. Francesco De Marco started at left wing back over Enrico Giannini and Domenico Didona played at right wing back over Matteo Marchisano. Antonio Vergara played as one of the two trequartisti alongside Giovanni Mercurio who started over Giuseppe D'Agostino. Finally, Antonio Cioffi started over Giuseppe Ambrosino at striker. So those were the starting lineups, next let's get to the match. Neither side had many opportunities to score in the opening half. Atalanta were certainly the more positive side going forward while Napoli were looking to strike on the counter. I completely understand the need to rotate with so many midweek fixtures and with so many players missing, but there is a clear decline in quality with so many reserve players on the field. Unfortunately, Atalanta scored on what was really their only clear-cut opportunity to score in the half. The goal came from a free kick after Mercurio fouled Olivieri on the right side of the midfield. Personally, I thought that was a pretty soft foul call by the official, but I'm obviously biased. Either way, Napoli should have done a better job defending the set piece. Olivieri took the free kick himself and played an outswinging cross into the area. Cisse rose up and won the header over Mane and directed the ball into the bottom corner. As you'll see in part 3, that type of play has become a bit of a problem for us. We seem to be losing a lot of aerial duels in the area. Normally, Kolisaku wins most balls in the air, but for some reason he ducked under the ball at the last second. It was almost as if he thought Idasiak called for the ball, but Idasiak was still on his line. It was a rough half for Mane. Besides this play, he was actually pretty good defensively, but earlier in the match he was involved in a head-to-head -head collision with Omar. Fortunately, both players were able to continue playing. So just past the half-hour mark, Atalanta had a one-goal lead. Antonio Trophy was our best player in the half. He was pretty much involved in every chance we had. Our best chance came in the 25th minute when Trophy got to the long ball before Daichar. He actually played a sombrero over Daichar, then he picked up Mercurio with a scissor kick pass on the bounce. Mercurio had only Cittadini to beat from the edge of the 6-yard box, but he completely missed the target. Trophy had two chances of his own in the half. The first was just minutes before that Atalanta goal. Gioielli played a long ball forward to Trophy. Cittadini got to the ball first, but Trophy blocked his clearance to win possession. Trophy ran straight at Cittadini and then burned him with a step over to get into the area. Trophy got the shot off, but it was from a tight angle and Daichar made the save at the near post. The second chance came just before the break. Sacco made a lovely turn to lose Giovanna in the Napoli half. He carried the ball through midfield before passing to Vergara. Vergara played a perfectly weighted ball over the top to Trophy on the right side of the area. He tried to pick the bottom corner, but his shot finished just wide of the far post. That was the final chance for either side in the half, so Atalanta went into the break up one goal to nil. 
The second half was not much different than the first in the sense that neither side created that many clear-cut opportunities to score. Atalanta had a chance early in the half from a throw-in to Giovanni. He crossed the ball into the area and Cisse glanced his header wide of the mark. Napoli were a bit more positive in the second half as we sought out the equalizer, but Atalanta defended well. As usual, Vergara was our most positive player. He drew free kicks in dangerous areas on a couple of occasions. The first was in the 70th minute. Both D'Agostino and Sacco stood over the ball. Sacco took the shot, but it finished high and wide of the goal. The second was in the 82nd minute. That time Vergara took the free kick himself and played an in-swinging cross into the area. Trophy was a fraction of a second too late. The ball bounced in front of Daichar and only needed a touch, but the keeper was able to make the catch. That was the final chance we had in the match. Atalanta came close in stoppage time. There was plenty of space on the pitch with Napoli pushing for the equalizer. Sidibe got 1v1 with Idasiak, but the keeper made the save. In the end, it didn't matter though, as Atalanta held on for what was a pretty boring 1-0 victory. With the loss, we dropped back down to 13th in the table. Empoli moved past us after somehow defeating top of the table Roma. Bologna pulled within one point of us with their upset over Juventus, so neither of those two results were good for us. Fortunately, Hellas Verona lost 1-0 to Inter, so they remained on 27 points, one point back of us as well. Lecce also lost to Milan and Spal drew Genoa, so the battle for survival got really tight after this round. As it stood, Lecce and Verona were in the two playout positions on 24 and 27 points respectively. Bologna was just above them, also on 27 points. Napoli and Empoli were on 28 points, and Genoa was on 30 points. With 11 rounds to play, or 12 in our case, this battle is completely wide open. Up next for the Primavera was a huge match against a direct rival in Empoli. We'll review that match in part 3. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to part 3 of the Forza Napoli podcast. We'll close the pod with a review of our Primavera match against Empoli on Sunday. As I mentioned at the end of part 2, this was a huge match between direct rivals. Both teams came into this match on 28 points, only one point clear of the relegation playout zone. Empoli have been a very streaky team this season. After losing the first match of the season to Hellas Verona, they went on an 8 game unbeaten streak consisting of 4 wins and 4 draws. Then they went on a 7 game losing streak which saw them drop from 2nd in the table all the way down to 15th. Unfortunately, we ran into Empoli when they were back on the up. They were unbeaten in their previous 4 matches prior to this one. They beat Spal 2-0, then drew Torino and Inter before beating Roma. The draw to Inter and especially the win over Roma would have given Empoli a lot of confidence coming into this match. Meanwhile, Napoli followed the high of beating Milan with the low of losing to Atalanta. Frustalupi recovered Benedetto Barba and Giuseppe Ambrosino for this match after they served their suspensions during the Atalanta match. He also recovered Matteo Marchisano from injury, but he did not recover Enrico Giannini. He was also without Musa Mane, who left the Atalanta match 
with what appeared to be a groin injury. So with that, let's get to the starting lineups. Empoli lined up in a 4-3-2-1 formation with Gianmarco Fantoni in goal. Nicolo Evangelisti and Leonardo Pezzola started at center back. Alessio Rizza started at left back and Jordan Boli started at right back. Duccio Deli Innocenti started in the center of the midfield with Ivo Kazmarski to his left and Luca Bonassi to his right. Jacopo Fazzini and Riccardo Fini played as the two trequartisti and Simone Lozza played at striker. For Napoli, Frustalupi made five changes to the squad that he fielded midweek against Atalanta. He lined up in his usual 3-4-2-1 formation with Hubert Idasiak in goal. Davide Costanzo and Benedetto Barba returned to the starting 11 after Pasquale Pontillo and Musa Mane started against Atalanta. Daniel Hisai completed the back three. Coli Sacco and Francesco Gioielli started again in the center of the midfield. This was the first time this season that Gioielli started in back-to-back matches. Francesco De Marco started again at left wing back and Matteo Marchisano returned to start over Domenico Di Donna at right wing back. Giuseppe D'Agostino also returned to the starting 11 to start over Giovanni Mercurio. He played as one of the two trequartisti alongside Antonio Vergara. And finally, Giuseppe Ambrosino returned to the starting 11 to start over Antonio Trophy at striker. So those were the starting lineups. Next, let's get to the match. The match started well with Napoli the more positive side in the opening 10 minutes. Ironically though, Empoli had the best chance during that period in the 8th minute. Rizza played a long ball forward to Fini on the left wing. He did really well to win the ball from both Marchisano and Barba. Fini carried the ball into the area before cutting it back to Lozza at the top of the box. He tried to pick the bottom corner with his first time effort, but Idasek was there to make a good save. Napoli responded with a half chance of our own. Sacco won the ball at midfield before the ball fell to D'Agostino. He played a quick give and go with Ambrosino before carrying into the area. However, he was only able to get a weak shot off and Fantoni made the easy save. Empoli grew into the match after that and the balance of the half was fairly even. The half was played at a high tempo but both sides defended well and limited their opponent's opportunities to score at least until the final 5 minutes of the half. The only chance for either side before then was an Empoli free kick about midway through the half. Fazzini drew the foul at the edge of the area so the free kick was in a pretty dangerous area. Deli Innocenti took the free kick, but it finished well wide of the mark. The two best chances of the half were in the final 5 minutes, and both fell for Napoli. First in the 41st minute, Barba played a long ball forward to D'Agostino. Rizza won the header, but the ball fell for Ambrosino about 25 yards from goal. Ambrosino struck the ball really well with the instep of his right boot. The shot curled out of the reach of Fantoni, but crashed off the bar and stayed out. Fortunately, only two minutes later, Napoli opened the scoring. The play started with Sacco winning a header just inside the Empoli half. Ambrosino did well to chest the ball down to Vergara just before Evangelisti could get there. Vergara touched the ball back to Ambrosino and continued his run into the area. Ambrosino played the through ball to Vergara and he played a cheeky back heel into the space near the penalty spot. Sacco had also continued his run and made a brilliant sliding shot with his left boot picking the top corner to give Napoli the lead. That was his second goal in our last three matches after not scoring a single goal all season. Empoli responded really well and nearly equalized in the final minute. Deli Innocenti played a give and go with Fazzini at the edge of the area. Deli Innocenti struck the ball first time and didn't miss the bottom corner by much. So after a bit of a stalemate in the opening 40 minutes, we had a flurry of chances to close the half and Napoli went into the break with a one goal lead. 
The second half was very similar to the first. It was very competitive, with neither side creating many chances until the latter part of the half. There were a few chances right at the start of the half, though. In the 47th minute, Ritza made a run down the line before crossing the ball to Lotza in the area. He flicked his header towards the far post, but the ball finished just wide of the mark. Napoli had a chance only two minutes later. The Marco played a throw into Vergara on the left wing. Vergara played a sombrero to get past Boli and then he carried the ball into the area. He went for goal, but the angle was too tight and Fantoni made the save. The Azzurini came close again on the ensuing corner kick, which Vergara played short. Vergara then passed the ball to D'Agostino at the edge of the area. The pass was heavy, but D'Agostino did really well to take the ball down, and then he got the volley off, but it took a slight deflection and finished over the bar. That was a good sign from D'Agostino, and perhaps it was a little foreshadowing of what was to come, because in the 72nd minute, D'Agostino doubled the lead. Marquisano played a throw-in down the line to Ambrosino. He did really well to hold the ball up in the corner before slipping it through to Vergara. Vergara picked out D'Agostino in the area. D'Agostino received the pass outside the 6-yard box, very calmly took an extra touch to open up the shot, and then rolled the ball into the side netting at the far post to double Napoli's lead. I was really happy to see D'Agostino get a goal. I talked about this in our last Primavera review episode. His production has declined this season and hopefully this goal will give him a much needed boost in confidence. That was his third goal of the season but it was his first since November 26th. So with less than 20 minutes left to play, Napoli were up by 2. It looked like Napoli were going to coast to a very important victory against a direct rival but everything unraveled in the final 10 minutes of the match. Empoli pulled one back in the 83rd minute after Napoli cleared the corner kick. Empoli switched the play to substitute Luca Magatsu on the right wing. D'Agostino followed Magatsu, but Ambrosino did not follow Pezzola. He was left wide open on the right wing to cross the ball into the area. Lotza dove and flicked his header at the first post past Idasiak, cutting the Azzurini's lead in half. Despite the goal, it seemed like Napoli were still going to collect the three points. In the 91st minute, Frustalupi replaced Ambrosino with Massimiliano Flora and he immediately got a chance to score. He side played a long ball forward to Trophy in the area. He did well to win the ball before laying it off to Flora. The 18 year old had a free shot in the area but didn't make good contact and missed the target. That proved to be a costly miss because less than 3 minutes later, Empoli scored the equalizer. Once again, it came from a cross from the right wing. This time substitute Elias Peralta was left wide open and he crossed the ball into the area. Idasiak went up for the ball but another substitute Gabriela Guarino rose up to win the ball heading it into the bottom corner. That made the score 2-2 with only a minute and a half left to play and that was how the match ended. Because of how the match played out, this result felt more like a loss than a draw. Fortunately, we didn't pay too dearly for dropping points. That's because Hellas Verona didn't play their match against Juventus. I believe that was because Juve played against Liverpool in the UEFA Youth League on Tuesday. For those who don't know, the Youth League is the Primavera equivalent of the Champions League. Juve actually won that match 2-0 to advance to the semi-finals. So their match against Hellas Verona has been postponed until April 6th. Unfortunately, Lecce upset Sassuolo on Sunday, so they pulled level with Hellas Verona on 27 points. It's looking more and more likely that Spal and Pescara will be relegated, but those relegation playout positions are completely up in the air. 
Bologna beat Genoa 1-0, so they leapt above both us and Empoli, while at the same time pulling Genoa into the relegation playout battle. As it stands, Bologna and Genoa are on 30 points, we're tied with Empoli on 29 points, and Hellas Verona and Lecce are currently in the two playout positions on 27 points. Both us and Verona have games in hand. We play our game in hand against Pescara on Wednesday, so by the time you hear this, that match may already be over. Hopefully we get the win, as that would move us up from 14th in the table to 11th, only one point behind Milan. So that will do for this review. That will also do for this episode. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please share it with a friend and leave us a rating on your favorite podcast platform. As always, if you'd like to get a hold of me, you can find me on Twitter at Joe underscore Fischetti5. And you can find the podcast on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Forza Napoli Pod. I'll be back later in the week to review that Primavera match against Pescara and to preview the senior team's match against Udinese. But until then, I'm Joe Fischetti. Forza Napoli sempre! Podcast Network. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.